elephants. Tonight, we have a titanic triple header. Three giants of the protection industry on one little podcast. I wasn't sure this podcast could take it, but we're still floating. Just. Who are these three titans, I hear you ask? First up, we have the Disability and Access Ambassador for the government's Disability Unit, current holder of the Guinness World Record for the world's longest title, and Zurich's Head of Market Engagement, Peter Hamilton. But up first is the previous Disability and Access Ambassador to the government's Disability Unit, the Principal of Johnny Timpson Consulting, and Professional Government Panel Member, you guessed it, it's Johnny Timpson. And last, but definitely not least, we've got my dad, Tom Bakery. But enough about who they are, let's find out what they have to say. Enjoy. Johnny, I presume that quite a few people won't have heard of you in a little while because you've entered retirement. Congratulations. Well, it, it, that's an interesting point, uh, Angus. Probably better to describe it as mutual redundancy. Uh, I've not retired at all. I think my former employer has kind of characterised as that. Actually, we just basically got to a point where I had done as much for my former employer as I possibly could. And equally, they had done as much for me as um, as they could too. So it was time, I think, for both of us to to move on to, to new things. That's exactly what I've done. Yeah, so, you know, so now I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm moving on. I've got my own consultancy. I'm a member of the Financial Service Consumer Panel and the Financial Inclusion Commission. I'm doing some things with some universities uh, and a number of financial services organisations as well. Doesn't sound like retirement to me. <laughs> Definitely not. That sounds like a headline in itself. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's and equally, you know, I've also uh, now moved on from being the Cabinet Office Disability and Access Ambassador and handed that role over to the fabulous Peter Hamilton. I couldn't think of a better person really to pick that that role up. Um, but, you know, I've, I've kind of morphed into another kind of government-type role as a member of the Prime Minister's Dementia Champions Group, uh, which is now seeing me work with the International Longevity Centre and a couple of uh, initiatives. One of them, actually, I think is quite relevant for financial services, which is a uh, we're looking at, can we develop a social prescribing partnership that enables financial services companies to be uh, informed when customers are vulnerable by their their treating clinician? Gosh, Johnny, could you know, with so many of your ideas, when I hear them for the first time, I think, wow, just imagine if the other many not really trusted financial services businesses could be trusted with that information and would then use it properly to help vulnerable consumers. What a what a game changer that would be for the industry reputation. It, well, it's there to be done, Tom. I mean, the, the, the insurance sector, when it comes to customer vulnerability, is lagging utilities and is lagging the banking sector. Uh, and I think these are things that are perfectly doable and we should aspire to, to do them. I've, I've been asked to write a stack of articles recently on customer vulnerability. And of course, the big issue is when do you know your customer is vulnerable? Because depending on circumstances, you can be permanently vulnerable or you could be occasionally vulnerable. The position you now occupy and the position that Peter occupies as well will be seen by quite a few younger people as, as maybe a chance for, for big business to influence government in, in the way that it wants to go. I mean, maybe I can just highlight some aspects of the disability and access ambassador roles, because I'm not sure how many people necessarily will have heard of them. Uh, there are now some 17 in total, and they cover a wide variety of different areas. So transport, education, uh, housing, hospitality, retail. 
For those who haven't come across them before, there's a pretty good definition actually from the disability unit which reports to the Cabinet Office and it might be just worth sharing their own definition of what these um, disability and access ambassadors are supposed to do for the different industries that they're working in. So if I could read briefly, uh, disability and access ambassadors are leaders in their industry who want to make private sector services more accessible. They're effective change makers who help to drive improvements in the accessibility and quality of services and facilities for disabled people. And they lead change and promote best practice from within. Ambassadors work to ensure businesses are doing all they can to support their disabled customers and employees. Uh, their voluntary positions held for a maximum of three years um, alongside the ambassador's uh, normal job. So I'll come in a minute, Angus, to your specific challenge, which I think is a fair one. Um, I ought to, to pay tribute to, to Johnny because he was uh, the first insurance ambassador. Uh, there's been plenty of tributes paid already, but I think he's raised the um, profile of issues such as disability and access and insurance in a way I think just couldn't have easily been imagined four years or more back. Um, so I've said before, but stepping into Timpson's shoes is a pretty big ask. Um, so, so in terms of that kind of broader challenge, are we somehow using our influence with government um, in a way that's uh, somehow inappropriate? Um, mm. I don't don't think we are. We need to be sure that we can make a difference here. I think um, the express mandate of the roles is to represent the diverse needs of those with disabilities. There is a legitimate challenge to say that these posts should be paid posts, perhaps, um, for those outside of the industry, uh, and maybe expressly for those uh, with a lived experience of disability. If there's an argument for appointment within the industry, uh, such as mine and Johnny's, uh, simply to make meaningful progress, I do think we need to make change. And that's going to be easier in all likelihood for someone who knows how the industry works and who can positively uh, influence diverse groups with different agendas. Fair enough. I think what's critical uh, is how the necessary changes are debated and discussed. And I know personally a lot about insurance, but I'll never know enough about the varied challenges of those with different disabilities face day in, day out. So every day, from a personal perspective, I do need to continue to educate myself and actually to encourage others to do the same. What a really good description. And you two absolutely exemplify the answer to that cynic because you are not in any way doing these jobs to further your careers uh, or, or to drive yourselves up within your large commercial organisations, in your case, Zurich. Peter and, and Johnny, uh, Scottish Widows as well as for you, you're, you're doing these really, and I've known you both for a very long time, for, from an internal demand to do good where you can. And, you, and you've been presented with this opportunity. And as Peter said, Johnny, you, you've just triumphed and inspired a whole industry. And now Peter has the relatively easy job of just continuing with that, as, as he keeps <laughs> pointing out. He keeps setting us, setting us up to expect failure. I should maybe say as well, I mean, just commenting on uh, the, the the financial services consumer panel and maybe the, the financial inclusion commission roles I've now got. Um, the, I mean, the financial services consumer panel, that's a statutory panel. And it's it's there to be a critical friend of the the regulator, the financial conduct authority and the other statutory panels that exist. One for big business, one for stock markets, one for, for smaller intermediary firms. I'm the voice of the consumer challenging but, you know, I'm using this to actually challenge not just the regulator, but the industry as well. How can we deliver better value? How can we deliver better outcomes? And being now no longer working for a life company, I've got the, the privilege really of being free to do that. And in terms of the Financial Inclusion Commission, the objective of, of the Inclusion Commission basically is to challenge the government, the regulator and the entire financial industry. It doesn't matter if it's car loans to protection on being more inclusive and and one of our big uh, the big challenge we have at the minute and the big campaign we're now mounting is you know given that the regulators get a statutory 
uh, competition objective. We want the regulator to have a statutory inclusion objective as well, because that basically would bring financial services back, I think, to a, a much better place where products and services, access importantly to appropriate advice, would be far more accessible for far more consumers. Maybe I could just have one more thought to, to John's points there. When I look at um, what we might do uh, as I look to build on the work that Johnny's done, uh, I think there's two aspects here. One is what we can do to help uh, disabled consumers access our services and products more easily, and I might touch on that uh, a bit further. I think the other is how can we make insurance a more accessible career? So there's a much more, I believe, that we can do. If I look purely from a parochial um, Zurich perspective, we, we do get involved in things like we are a disability confident leader. We have recently been a founder member of, for example, GAIN, which is a group for autism, insurance and neurodiversity. And I think uh, it, it's very easy to assume because we have things like the symbol of the wheelchair, which suggests that all disabilities are physical. Clearly, that's not the case. Something like 80% of disabilities will be will be hidden. And there is a real opportunity for us to make our industry one where those perhaps who are neurodiverse can have sustained fulfilling careers because we do know that uh, people with for example autism both find it harder to, to get a job in the first place and then to stay in a job but insurance is absolutely one where the uh, the specific skills and capabilities of someone um, who is neurodiverse can really shine uh, and just uh, finished a fantastic book by a guy called um, Simon Baron Cohen uh, brother of the uh, famous Sasha Baron Cohen, who is a leading authority on neurodiversity. So he's written a book called The Pattern Seekers, which just highlights the impact that neurodiverse thinking has had as we've developed our society. And if you look to any industry where you are looking for patterns uh, in data, in history, then absolutely insurance is one where those kind of skills and capabilities uh, can come to the fore. So whether it's how we recruit people, whether it's how we retain people, I think there's and industry effort underway, evidence not least by this launch within the last few weeks of GAIN, to really make insurance a uh, fulfilling and exciting career for neurodiverse people. Uh, maybe just say about GAIN, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on it. I'm one of the founder members, along with Laurie Edmonds and Barbara Schoenhofer. Um, and the story behind GAIN, basically, is that it, it, it was something I was looking at when I had Peter's role, because I was challenged by, of all people, Sir John Major, in terms of the banks are doing a pile of great work on uh, neurodiversity. And, and one in, you know, we're all neurodiverse, but one, one in, in, in seven of us is, is neurodivergent. Uh, that's one in seven are family, friends, colleagues, importantly, our customers. He said, well, what, what's happening with insurance? And actually, you know, the, the answer to that was actually nothing. And as it happens, right at the same time, my son was diagnosed as being autistic. And in getting to a point where we discovered my son was autistic, we discovered that I was autistic as well. And it's amazing now the number of, of, of people in later life, but particularly women, that are now being diagnosed as, as, as autistic. And that was a, quite a revelation for me because um, I, I, there are many times in my life I'd struggled to get up positions. I was told I wasn't a natural team leader and I now discover that, you know, um, well, being autistic, I can understand maybe why I presented that way. And I've had to work very hard in, in terms of, uh, of, of developing my, my leadership skills. When you and indeed Peter started to work your way up in your respective roles and, and became leaders for, for the first time, how did, that, uh, how did that work? How did that fit? How did you adapt? 
Well, it, it's 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 an interesting question because I mean I, I I've had a, a very mixed career. I mean, up until the end of the the nineteen nineties, really, I led sales teams, and at that point, uh, I was kind of pitching for the next level up. You know, pitching for executive type appointments. Um, but you know, I, I I was told repeatedly, you know, that I I wasn't uh, you know, I wasn't a natural executive leader. I couldn't lead large numbers of of people. I've always believed that you know when you get rejection, the best way of approaching it is to understand why why was that outcome reached. And I, and I have to say, I struggled with that until until you know, and, and I know you know, being autistic, it was maybe the way that I presented. You know, I wasn't maybe as uh, empathetic as I perhaps should have been. Um, and I was on a voyage of self self discovery then to some extent. And um, you know, I, I I I was lucky enough to be mentored by of all people, Professor Marius Barnard who invented critical illness. And I discussed this with him at length and, and reinvented myself, really. Uh, I started to learn a lot more about neurodiversity. I, and I had to work... I, I, I then thought, right, well, I, I need to... I am quite empathetic, but I need to maybe demonstrate that. And uh, I did a lot of work, particularly around kind of four-minute management-type principles and four-minute leadership type type approach but and i have to say since then i've i've most of my leadership has mainly been with virtual teams and pan industry as opposed to well pan and i work for lloyd's banking group pan bank not just the insurance arm and but wider pan industry as well uh and some of those the roles have seen me lead some of them influence and some of them be supportive of of, of colleagues in leadership positions peter from my own perspective i think uh if i look back to any kind of leadership position, the first would have probably been a, a university boat club, um, which <laughs> is a long, long time ago. But it was the first time uh, I had any experience. I was totally unready for it, I would say. Um, I could row pretty well. Um, but looking back, I'm not sure I can see any distinguishing reason why I might have got that appointment other than I was probably the tallest. But I think what it did do was start to um, instill things like the value of collective effort, agreeing objectives, recognising differences in people, uh, maybe having to have some difficult conversations along the way, not least who's in the crew, who's not in the crew, and and why that might be. From a career perspective, I then went to legal in general, having done a law degree. Uh, It took me two years to find out they weren't a firm of solicitors. (laughs) Uh, And quite a bit longer to actually get, I think, any kind of leadership experience. Because at the time, I don't think insurance companies were particularly great at pushing people forward and, and really challenging them. Sure. I've always been struck more recently by some of the interventions and discussions I've had with government bodies, just how young the people sitting at the other side of the table are. And you know, I think probably now insurers are starting to recognise we ought to be challenging people earlier and quicker than we do. Because you know, if you're in a government department, um, pretty quickly you're charged with you know a range of things that you know have struck me as pretty um, challenging in terms of policy development, but absolutely good for somebody who you know is is relatively new in their career, but is being stretched and pushed in a way that insurers in the past, when I was starting, just weren't good at doing. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's interesting how, you, you know, your skills develop over, over time. I mean, uh, you know, in, re- in reinventing myself, you know, like I've kind of, um, I- I've tried to be as flexible as possible in my approach. Maybe I've, it's happened to me maybe, you know, later in, in, in my career than others. But, in t- you know, and, and it's it's trying to recognise what, what the, the need, any situational, you know, really, what's the need? Do you need to be telling and being directive or do you need to focus on maybe particularly with salespeople coaching and, and mentoring other times and in fact a lot of the work I've been doing in recent years it's actually just delegating 
um, you know, networking, delegating, you know, f- having a purpose, getting everyone basically signed up to to that purpose. A lot of it has been absolutely about understanding the the perspective of the individuals that you're talking to. So with different companies, I've been engaged with areas where we've had to have corporate restructures that have meant redundancies. And that's just the toughest bit, I think, of the job that I've ever been involved in, because you are directly affecting people's lives. I think it's about being really clear the decision making process that you're going through in the first place. So, So if you've got to make some tough decisions, which periodically people will have to do, why is that? allowing plenty of preparation in terms of giving thought to how you're going to communicate that. And I've not always done that well. You know, when, when I've kind of reflected back, I haven't necessarily, um, you know, made sure that the environment was just right, that I'd given enough thought and I'd prepared in advance for it. So of all the things, you know, when I look back, I would have you know, improved on and done differently. Any of those kind of um, situations, giving it clear advanced thought and really looking to understand the way uh, the individuals that you're talking to um, will feel about it is just critical. Johnny, how do you deliver hard news? Well, I, I'd, I'd agree with what Peter just said, actually. I mean, I started the call today by saying, you know, I'd been made redundant six months ago. And, uh, you know, I'm a better person for that. It happens. I've had, I've had to make people redundant in the past. And like Peter, and that's a hard thing to do. And you you do question, could you have done it better? I've never experienced that myself. And, and, and I think I'm a better person for having experienced that. And I'm now, you know, I think that makes me a more empathetic person i think going going forward tom and i think in the environment that we're in right now i, I do think that in terms of leadership skills you know having developing your emotional intelligence and, and and having empathy is perhaps the most important factor and just just to add on that um i think we talked earlier about the need for that kind of constant learning constant curiosity and there's kind of no excuse it seems to me for, for not continuing to develop oneself now given the kind of range of um, materials available. When I started off, you know, we would have occasional company courses, but there's very little you could easily access other than um, perhaps a, a textbook of sorts. But now there are TED Talks, there are podcasts, but but more uh, information than we've ever had available. You need to be able to filter it out clearly. But I mean, interestingly, that point on empathy is a really good one. So Johnny um, on Twitter uh, sent round on uh, Sunday, I think it was, um, an article from Forbes all about empathy as a leadership um, quality. The, the idea that that information is there, it's, it's shared um, and can be reflected on is something that we just didn't have 40 years ago. I will continue to learn from Johnny, um, uh, n- not least from the uh, instructive tweets that he sends out. So thank you for that particular one. I think empathy of all those leadership qualities will be perhaps more important than pretty much any other. Hmm, I like that. Maurice Barnard always told me that he, he focused on learning something every day. Uh, and and using that piece of learning to make a difference. Having him as my mentor, actually, I thought that's a that's a good idea. You know, what can I learn today, and and, and how can I how how can I make a difference? And and I've, I've kind of held by that ever since. Really, and I think that's a that's a good piece of learning for all of us. I'm happy to share that. You talk about developing in uh, through your lives. I suppose my my experience of leadership has been very different because I appointed myself leader age twenty when I went self employed. So I've had to evolve. Uh, constantly, well, basically realised what I was doing wrong constantly. Uh, and that process really never stops. However you do it, leadership is without doubt an evolution. But you, you've you assumed, Johnny, you took the little bit of influence that the government appointment gave you uh, and, and you hauled together 50-odd people who were industry leaders of one sort or another, which Peter and I were too, and you... Um, you pulled us together using a government building, so we, we, we were impressed. 
because we were in the in the DWP, uh, and we all turned up, and from there you you created this movement. I saw that then as the the result. You were able to do that as a result of a a, a change that had come over our industry in terms of its intent over the past 10 or 15 or more years before that. Uh, and obviously that was some years ago now, four or five years ago now, uh, the Caxton House Group. There's been a journey in the protection industry from being all about sales to now, really, a lot of it's about increasing access uh, and dealing with vulnerable customers uh, in a way that really isn't just simply not directly associated with making money, although indirectly, obviously, the more people one helps, the better. Uh, and, and yeah, the more the more people I suppose one can make money out of, if if you put it that crudely. Yeah. But there's been a journey there that we've been on, and the three of us have lived through that journey. I just wondered how how it felt to to you. Well, I guess to some extent. I mean, I have to thank Scottish Widows for for you know putting me in position over the last really twenty years, where I've been involved in every single um, major insurance initiative. It was a case, I guess, I took about six, seven months, Tom, to review, um, you know, what the industry could do to do, to quickly and simply deliver some improved outcomes for consumers. It would have a positive effect on the industry itself. And um, I, I agreed, I, 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 had a, a, I was presented with a blank canvas, really, by the then Disabilities Minister. So I agreed some actions with her. I mean, you didn't have, you know, you weren't given any budget, uh, you weren't given any any resource so the only thing you could do was, inf- was find common causes that everyone could rally around. And um, and you have to rally, in, you know, it's a big big deal trying to in, uh, rally the insurance industry because then you're talking about the Lloyd's marketplace, the general insurance marketplace for both individuals and companies. In protection, for example, you know, the, the individual and the group marketplace and rattle on all the investment um, uh, world as well. Um, so it's basically trying to... to what are some common denominators that we we could we could rally around? So you know, access, transparency, and trust and underwriting was one. Signposting to specialists was another. Professionalism another, and doing things via the workplace was the other one. And equally, we needed to have the voice of the customer at the heart of what we were doing. And I, I kind of and I knew that the, the regulatory direction of travel was there was a um, uh, guidance from the from the um, the regulator coming down the track with inclusion inclusion by design at its 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 heart in terms of. Uh, better serving the needs of vulnerable customers. And I knew that either through, at that point, th- either through uh, Parliament, we would have a, a a duty of care, which would hit us as a, as a, re- as a, a legal requirement, or that would, the regulator would reflect that in some overarching consumer duty that would sit above TCF. And that's exactly what's happened. So, you know, having having the, the voice of the consumer in the form of charities uh, influencing us was quite important, which is why I set up the the charity reference group to guide our work. And I have to say, you know, I, I, you know, one thing I, I've I have worked quite hard on over the last twenty years is networking, and I happen to know some brilliant people. I've got a couple of them on this call now in this industry who can make change happen. And um, I, and I was lucky to to bring everyone together around those common objectives. And I think. Um, just reflecting on what John has said there, that's absolutely right. There's some kind of core deliverables that collectively, I think, have been um, addressed over the last uh, number of years. And as I look where we go next, I think some of it is absolutely building expressly on that. So things like the way we might signpost customers to um, uh, companies or to advisors where uh, 
they might otherwise have found difficulty in getting access to products is something that a uh, hugely positive start has been made. Um, but I think there's still more that we can do to enhance that. Um, I talked a bit earlier about how we make insurance a more accessible career. I think there's plenty we can do there. I think there are some other themes as, as I look to kind of uh, work with others to set up this plan of um, specific deliverables over the next 18 months to two years. I think things like um, underwriting and data, it strikes me there's, there is a challenge coming towards us in in respect to the amount of data that we currently are able to gather. Um, we collectively are all kind of giving more and more data to more and more different people. There's a challenge as to how best that's, that's used and whether it's um, used with appropriate informed consent. And there is a danger, I think, that with more and more information on individuals, the kind of core principles of insurance, which is based on the pooling of risk so that um, the unfortunate few are supported by the um, fortunate many who don't have to claim, um, starts to be threatened uh, if we find that um, that, that, that pooling, which uh, involves a degree of cross-subsidy because um, you've got not um, a huge amount of data necessarily historically on individual lives, the more granular the information we have on individual customers the more challenging it is to ensure that you don't start to exclude people because you could easily find ourselves in a situation where um, we can price a product very um, specifically for an individual because of all the data we have, but uh, it becomes increasingly hard to offer that same insurance at a, an affordable and reasonable price for those people who do come with uh, more uh, material medical conditions that need assessing. So, so you can't kind of put that data genie back in the bottle. But, but of all the things that we need to focus on, I think how we ensure the kind of core premise of insurance, which is that pooling of risk, um, and manage appropriately the, the wealth of data that we now start to see in front of us is going to be um, one of those challenges. I think technology is linked to that and how we use things like assistive technology to enhance the customer experience of insurance, but also overarching all of that coming back to johnny's point on customer engagement um you know specifically through his charities reference group we need to ensure that when we look at all of those themes we do bring the voice of a lived experience of those with disabilities into the discussion um and ally that with a hard data to produce some measurable outcomes so i think building on johnny's good work i think there's some core themes that are self-evident there we need to turn those into meaningful objectives fantastic Certainly, the roles that I now have within the Financial Services Consumer Panel and the Financial Inclusion Commission, I'm looking to support that great work that Peter just articulated there. And certainly that's the reason why both the Consumer Panel and the Inclusion Commission, we desperately feel that the regulator has to have a statutory financial inclusion objective. Because what we're seeing at the minute, the regulator, when they talk in terms of their, the competition, uh, the competition objective, that, that's very much, in the term, you know, they're very focused on fintech. I think if we're not careful, we just end up excluding more people if we, if we just focus all our, all our efforts solely on, on, on progressing a kind of fintech agenda. We need to bring it back. And I think we need to have inclusion at the heart of, of, of uh, what the regulator's doing. Because um, it's already there within the industry. You know, we, you don't have to tell protection specialist advisors to act in customer best interest. Your answers to these questions are teaching me uh, a great deal. And, and I've sat in an awful number of these meetings with you. Uh, and actually, just one point that, that is sitting in my mind is that I think your stroke of genius, Johnny, another one of your strokes of genius was to include the charities in the original group to encourage them. I was going to use a stronger word, but really encourage them 
to to take us seriously as a bunch of people who are trying to do good and not just look through the cynical lens uh, of of you know perhaps past experience. But Peter, that is a big job that needs needs taking forward because although the charities are with us and one or two are really on the ball and, and part of the group, the wider collective of disability charities, getting those to see the point and really supporting us in this work uh, is, is, a, is a, a vital challenge. It absolutely is. Uh, and it's not just for us as an insurance industry. I think um, one of the many things I've looked to read and better understand has been how policy is made uh, within government expressed in these areas and there's a 90 page report on uh, how the the DWP has been working on engaging with uh, charities and disabled representative groups to look at the issues and the findings were broadly they don't do enough there is a recognition that it is hard to do so I don't underestimate the challenge one of the important phrases that I think um, you know comes up a lot is the idea of um, nothing about us without us so when you're talking about changing the way uh, we might develop our products, our services, our processes to better enable those with disabilities to access them, then we shouldn't be doing that uh, in insurance ivory towers. Good. Absolutely. Yes. The, one of the, the challenges that I've always felt our industry faces is that there is a... If the structure involves... Uh, very few very big companies, global companies, maybe no more than a dozen really, who in the end take on all the risk that the rest of us create in terms of underwriting risk. And those are the reinsurers. And then you have a a, a larger, but not that much larger group of, shall we say, 30 uh, plus or minus insurers. There might be 50, but there's they're certainly only 20, 25 very substantial ones. Insurers whose job it is to turn that risk into a product which which then distributors can sell and then you go straight from there to thousands of little distributors of which life search is just about the biggest uh, but not a very big company by any normal standards uh, of industry uh, and somehow one has to get this message that you're uh, promulgating through all those different types of business and levels of business uh, how on earth do you deal with a reinsurer who has the ultimate control over what risk is taken? Uh, and also, uh, if you like, a, a five or six employee business in a, in a town in, in, in Britain whose job it is to engage the consumer with that risk. Yeah, there are challenges. I mean, I, I would perhaps question the automatic association of the reassurers being the ultimate risk taker. I mean, in, in our own case at Zurich, we take 90% of the risk, so, so we don't reassure very much at all. In big chunks of business we have, we might do more on specific lines. But I think different insurers will have a different degree of appetite in terms of how much they do end up insuring themselves. But more broadly, the point as to how we engage the rest of the industry is an important one. I mean, when I started 40 years ago, there were something like 300,000 advisors uh, or salespeople. So now... I would say you know, the number of people who are regularly talking to customers about protection will be, and you'll know this better than most, Tom, you know, fewer than 10,000, uh, probably nearer 5,000. So if we looked at some of the changes over the years, we've seen the pretty much eradication of, of all of the old direct sales forces, which had benefits, but also some, some disbenefits along the way. And I think some of the kind of poorer practices that might have been associated with those um, many years ago have absolutely gone. In a way, it's credit to you know, most obviously LifeSearch for the work that you've done to kind of create a new breed of protection specialists who really do focus on the life assurance, critical illness, income protection 
areas uh, in a way that often get overlooked by other advisory firms, perhaps concentrating more widely on, for example, pensions and investments, um, general insurance and more. So the fact that we're now down from 300,000 to you know, nearer 30,000 in total, uh, I think might have suggested we'd seen many, many people left without financial protection. So I think the model that you, you've started and is now you know, copied with varying degrees of success by many others has been something that's actually taken the industry forward. At that level, with insurers, I think we've probably got fewer people overall to engage with than might have been the case historically. But you're right, more broadly, we still need to make sure that uh, we understand the different perspectives of all the stakeholders, and that's customers, that's distributors, that's reassurers, and that's insurers. It's going to be one of the, the biggest ongoing um, challenges that we have to do that. I'd agree with that, Peter. I don't think there's enough recognition, actually, um, within the industry itself, actually, of the, the What's exactly happened in the protection marketplace over the last fifteen to twenty years? You know, with the creation of the life search model. I mean, I call, I, I think you have given rise, Tom, to the what I call the age of the Zoom advisor. We used to talk about you know advice and guidance, and uh, and particularly within pharma, the distinction between the two and robo advice. Actually, the the age the, the we're now in the age of the the, the Zoom advisor that makes advice and, and, you know, far more accessible to far more people. But I think equally, if you look at the business, we've got far fewer people, but look at the business levels that are now being processed. They are the same. So we've become far more efficient. And I think that speaks volumes about the, the progress that people like iPipeline, for example, have made in the development of portals. I would like to see that now, you know, that, that now really recognised within the industry and the, the industry really start to focus on on more coordinated activity to raise consumer awareness. It pains me that we've got a money and pension service uh, supported financial inclusion strategy in the UK that hasn't got protection within it. There's a big miss as far as I'm concerned. You know, we had seven families, but we haven't really been able to really con- to build on that. If you look at the pensions world, for example, you know, we've now have, you know, pensions month, pensions awareness week, pensions day, is established as kind of industry campaigns. It'd be great to see that the, the industry get behind the protection sector to do exactly that. I guess we can look, Johnny, can't we, to the uh, Income Protection Awareness Week that an industry group uh, very positively put together uh, just a month ago. So there is more uh, that is being done, I think, in, in that space to raise awareness. But yeah, o- overall, what more do we need to do? I think one of the biggest challenges we do have is there is still a big question mark in the minds of many, many consumers as to you know how far as an industry we are want to be trusted. Managing that is always going to be difficult because we deal in areas that people don't typically like to to think about, um, you know, whether it's death, disability or or more. So it's at the most difficult times of people's lives. And actually, elsewhere, that there are kind of impacts on our own, um, perhaps more narrow focus on the industry that can be impacted by, uh, for example, most obviously the, the business interruption claims through through COVID last year on the general insurance side, which um, you know brought headlines and challenges. And consumers don't really make much of a distinction between the kind of product and the kind of insurer. If ever they hear of a claim not being paid, they apply that pretty much, I think, to all insurers and all types of products. So we will continue to have this need to, to reinforce the, the good that we do, because I genuinely believe that we are absolutely a force for societal good, um, most obviously in the protection industry. I mean, I've worked over the years in pretty much every part of insurance, and 
I have to say that there's much less satisfaction to be derived from making people who are reasonably wealthy a bit more wealthy uh, or a lot more wealthy with an investment plan than it is to see the difference we'll make with, for example, the claim on uh, a life policy. And if you look back last year, I think the industry paid hundreds of millions of pounds, I think it's 220 million pounds just on COVID. And overall, across the industry, £6 billion paid out in protection claims. So the difference we will make to customers' lives at the most difficult times in their lives is is huge, but customers will not always recognise that. So how do we continue to get that story across? Uh, though it does seem to me, Peter, that, that a lot of what you're talking about reputationally actually needs us to diverge uh, as a block from the other insurance markets. Uh, our, our payment rates are so high on claims and so good uh, and that we, we really, in order to get consumers engaged with us, need to hold ourselves up as the paragons of virtue we are when it comes to settling claims. And the problem with that, of course, is that almost all insurers are, are multi-line. So, so you know, you, you can't diss your motor uh, bunch no, but, uh, in order to promote your life bunch. But uh, perhaps distributors could do that because we're not multi-line. Just to build briefly on that, I think there's almost a bigger issue where we can start to make a difference. And this came across from a recent ABI conference, Association of British Insurance Conference, talking about sustainability. So I think in a way we can raise the focus of conversation and communication to to things like how we can make a difference to the the world and the society we're living in. So, so one of the biggest facts that struck me at the time was uh, this particular conference, an observation that to meet the climate change transitional targets by 2050 uh, needs something like 2.7 trillion pounds worth of investment. Actually, insurers, with a few changes to the ways in which we can invest our monies, could account for a third of that. So we have the power as an industry collectively, if we were to collaborate appropriately, to make such a difference to economy and, and the sustainability of, of the industries and lives around us. So I think a kind of combination of high-level macro intervention on policy as an insurer, the, the way we insure new technologies as, a, as an investor, where that money goes, and um, as individual companies, how we react and manage our own carbon footprints, for example, can start to make a difference that will perhaps for the first time, you know, get people to see us as, as the good guys, which I think we are. So it's not just about insurers paying claims, but it is that, that is important. But how we, as an industry, impact the wider society that we live in. And I think now, more than ever before, we've got a chance to do that. I think, fairness to you, Tom, that was the vision that you had with CPEC, if you remember, back in 2008. Well, well remembered, Johnny. Well remembered. That's lost in the mists of time. I sometimes think now is the time to, to reinvigorate it. The call for, for collective action has always been clear. The difficulties in getting it to happen are more or less insurmountable. Uh, but is that the key to, to, to getting consumer engagement? Peter, I, I think that the, the, the underlying fundamentals of your last words there, uh, in, in terms of really engaging the insurance industry in the global effort to, well, make us more sustainable uh, is a uh, a vital key to, to engendering trust. Well, you'll have to stick it all together in your new role, Peter, as uh, chair of the Access to Insurance Committee and Johnny in all his multiplicity of roles. The rest of us will follow you and we will and support you all the way uh, and do our bit uh, as we've uh, we've tried to do so far. So thank you, guys. No, thank you. Um, it's been uh, great to have a chance to talk through some of these ideas and, and areas. Absolutely, quite agree. Boom. That is what you call a heavyweight podcast, people. 
massive thank you to Peter and Johnny for talking to Tom and I. It's lovely to see that the people at the top who, at the very least, are advising the people making the decisions, really do care about what they're doing, and that encourages me. I hope it does you too. Next week, we've got Katie Crook-Davies, co-founder of the Risky Mix podcast, and her consultancy, Tabby. But in the meantime, please like, subscribe, and give us that big star review. Cheers, everyone.